I invite you to turn with me to Galatians chapter 2. Galatians 2. Let me read for us Galatians 2, 11 through 14. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? Let's pray. Father, we ask that your word would instruct our hearts this morning and we would be attentive to it. With the help of your spirit, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. The Apostle Peter, that's his name there, Cephas, that's Peter. The Apostle Peter is a pinnacle figure in the New Testament. Uh, We know him, you know the stories about him. He really dominates so much of the New Testament. And I would think that if I had the opportunity to have a conversation with him, I wouldn't be interested in saying much. I want to hear what he had to say. And I'm not sure that even if he said something wrong, I would have the guts to say something back to him. I'd probably accept it as true because after all, he's the Apostle Peter. What would it make or what would it take for you to stand up to Peter? Would you have the guts to do it? Would you be able to stand there and tell him, you're wrong, Peter? Maybe another way to phrase it would be, what things are you so convinced of that no matter who it is or when it is or what the situation is, you would be willing to stand up and say something about it if you're convinced that it's being spoken wrongly about? What would you do that for? Would it be your kids, maybe? No matter what, you'd be willing to stand up and say what needs to be said in their defense? Your spouse? Your parents, what would it take? What would you be so convinced of that no matter what or no matter who, you'd be willing to stand up to them? I hope it at least would be the gospel. I hope that you would have the gospel so ingrained in your heart, so firm in your convictions that no matter who, no matter when, no matter what, you would be willing to stand up for the truth of the gospel. But in case you haven't experienced this yet, sometimes we betray our conviction in the gospel. Sometimes our life does not agree with that which we profess to believe. Sometimes we have opportunity to stand up in defense of the gospel or stand our lives in a pattern that is consistent with the gospel, and we stumble, or we shut our mouths, or we open our mouths in a way that we ought not to. And sometimes we betray the very gospel that we profess to believe. This morning, and because of this text, I want you to live 
by the same gospel that you believe. I want you to live by it. I think this text is really instructive for us in this regard. We give some context to what's happening here in the book of Galatians so far. If you've been with us, we've been going through this book and working through this argument. The Apostle Paul is writing this book to a number of churches in Galatia. That's uh, modern-day Turkey, the southern part of it. And he's been developing an argument that He's been weaving together and really is going to keep going through the next couple of chapters. He just builds and builds and builds an argument. He begins the letter in chapter 1, verse 6 with a scathing rebuke. He says to the Galatians, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. He sees what's happening to the churches in Galatia, that they're turning away from what, that, from what they had once believed And Paul is taking them to task. He goes on in chapter 1, verse 9 to say, As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. The situation there was pretty dire. He recognized that the Galatians were turning from what they had once believed. And he says in chapter 5, verse 7, You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? There were teachers who came from Jerusalem and were teaching the Galatians a gospel contrary to the one they had received. And so Paul gets on the defense and he begins to remind them of the gospel that he preached to them at first. And he tells them the gospel that he preached to them is not man's gospel. He received it by revelation. And then he goes on to indicate that any interaction that Paul had with anyone else really in the Christian world was not so that he would receive instruction about the gospel, but so that the gospel could always be confirmed. He even says that when he gets together with the the pillars of the Jerusalem church, they all agree on the gospel. Peter was there. And as Peter was there and Peter gets together with Paul, they all agree on what the gospel was. Chapter 2, verse 9. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. They welcomed them. Paul was welcomed by Jerusalem or the Jerusalem apostles, and so there was this corroboration of the gospel. They all agreed. They're all on the same page. Now as Paul addresses The Galatians, he's narrating them a a sequence of events about how the gospel, in a sense, has come to be perverted. And he tells them about an event that happens at Antioch. Turn with me to Acts chapter 11. Antioch is a crucial city for the expanse of the gospel. Antioch is a, a city that was north of Jerusalem, outside of the realm of Israel. And it rises to a level of importance in the New Testament because it is the place where the gospel goes as people are scattered from Jerusalem and Judea and the gospel spreads out and gets up to Antioch. And when it reaches Antioch, something phenomenal happens there. Verse 20 and 21. It says, There were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists, That's most likely the Greeks, 
also preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. Something astounding starts happening in the city of Antioch. Gentiles are receiving the gospel. You have Jews and you have Gentiles, and they're both receiving the gospel. In verse 22, the report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. It might be a passage that you just kind of scan through in your reading of the Bible, but it has a significance for us because it is the first church that is effectively seeing the unification of Jews and Gentiles together And that's the place that they're first called Christians. This is a phenomenal outworking of God's plan. But after this time, there's a plague that begins to spread through the church. And it's being taught that in order to be saved, the Gentiles need to receive the Mosaic law. They need to receive circumcision. And of course... Antioch would be a city that's targeted for this because it is a place where Jews and Gentiles are being saved. And so, of course, those who think that you need to keep the law in order to be saved would go to Antioch and preach their version of the gospel there. And this plague had so much influence in that region that it leads to one of the greatest conflicts that I think happened in the history of the world. And I don't mean that as an overstatement. I mean that with all sincerity. There is one of the greatest conflicts that's ever happened in history. We look at world history too often through the lens of the political leaders that show their influence. We think of Genghis Khan. We think of Hitler. We even think of those like Washington and Lincoln or Mao. And we think of them as the pinnacles of world history. And we think that's really where world history rises and falls. But really, world history rises and falls around the expanse of the gospel. World history surrounds God's plan of redemption. And because it surrounds God's plan of redemption, it surrounds those who are redeemed. And we see in Galatians chapter 2, one of the greatest conflicts in the history of the world because you have these two pinnacles of New Testament Christianity Peter and Paul butting heads. And in one sense, this will have more influence and more significance than any war that's ever been fought. Because this is a battleground over the very gospel that saves human souls. And so there's no other conflict that really could be more important than this. And it's so important between these two men because these two men, Peter and Paul, basically divide up the New Testament. As you read through the book of Acts, the first half of the book of Acts is about Peter. Second half of the book of Acts is about Paul. And so you can really trace the plan of God's saving program through Peter and then through Paul. And they intersect here in Galatians chapter 2, and they're at odds with one another. This is a big deal. 
And so we have, in these few verses, one of the most fascinating encounters in the New Testament, briefly told, but very strategic and important. Let's talk for a moment about Peter. Peter is such a great character. Peter is a man that comes to life on the pages of Scripture. He's very human. Peter was a man who was so zealous that he promised Jesus that he would die with Jesus rather than deny him. But Peter, at the same time, turned out to be a man so fickle that he denied Jesus rather than die with him. But after that, we find Peter again in Acts 2, and he's so bold that he preaches the gospel to all those who gathered for Pentecost, and 3,000 people were saved that day. Peter was so clear on the uniqueness of Christ in regard to the gospel that he was willing to say to those who opposed him, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Acts 4.12. What a crystallization of the uniqueness of Christ, and that's spoken by the apostle Peter. Peter was a man so stubborn in his pursuit of Christ, following his denial that when he was charged to stop preaching the gospel, he stubbornly refused and said, we must obey God rather than men. Lest we forget, he was a man who was transformed in his understanding of what the gospel meant and who it applied to. In Acts chapter 10, Peter received a revelation from heaven. A sheet came down from heaven, and it was full of clean and unclean animals, and Peter was told, rise, Peter, kill and eat. And Peter said, by no means, Lord. He wouldn't do it, because he had never eaten anything unclean. He had kept the Jewish law. If you read Leviticus, you know the animals that the Jews were allowed to eat and not eat. That was really important to their identity. It marked out who they were, marked them out as followers of God. And Peter refused, but then the vision repeated itself, and eventually Peter got the message, and he was told to go and preach the gospel to Cornelius, a Gentile. And he did that, and he saw Cornelius and his household receive the gospel and receive the Holy Spirit. And Peter declares in Acts 11:17, if then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, Who was I that I could stand in God's way? Peter was a man who was radically transformed by the gospel. In many ways, but we see it remarkably so when he is willing to go into a Gentile's house and preach the gospel to them and associate with them and not demand that they keep the law in order to be saved. Peter's a transformed man. He now has a new paradigm for looking at the gospel of grace and understanding it can go to Gentiles without the law attached to it. This is significant for this man. Paul, we know him as well. He wrote 13 letters of the New Testament. Again, he dominates the second half of the book of Acts. He was a man set apart by Christ. In Acts 9.15, he was told by the Lord Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. Apart from 
Jesus Christ, who is the head of the church, no other man has had more influence in the history of the church than Paul. Not Martin Luther, not Augustine, not Billy Graham, not Paul. So now we've got Peter and we've got Paul. And in these brief verses, we have a clash of the titans. These two mammoths of the early church meet in Antioch. And they have this clash. Paul just said in Galatians chapter 2, verse 9, that Peter and Paul had agreed. They received each other. They shook hands on it. They had the right hand of fellowship. They were on the same page. But between verse 9 and verse 11, something's happened. Because verse 11 says, But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. Paul says the reason that he opposed Peter, and the reason is very simple. It's over a meal. It's over dinner. That's why Peter, or Paul stands up to Peter boldly rebukes him in the presence of everyone. It's because of a meal. Peter had been eating with Gentiles. That's a significant break from Jewish custom to be willing to sit down a Jew with a Gentile and share a meal with them. Peter had been doing that. But then it says that certain men came from James, meaning they they came from Jerusalem. They probably carried the name of James with them. It doesn't necessarily mean that James sent them out to teach this. They come, and they come with some maybe self-made authority. And this is probably what happened at the beginning of Acts 15 when men came to Antioch and were preaching that you must be circumcised in order to be saved. And after these men came down from Jerusalem, Peter no longer ate with the Gentiles. And then there's this domino effect. Because Peter toppled over when these men came and said that you must be circumcised in order to be saved. And Peter withdrew from eating with the Gentiles. And Peter fell. And then Paul says, and the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. And they just topple, one after another. At Antioch, there used to be the sweet fellowship, Jew and Gentile, eating together. Now they're at separate tables. They're no longer eating together. And the dominoes fall. Until the dominoes come against Paul. And he's like a brick right in those row of dominoes. And you know dominoes aren't going to topple over a brick. And Paul stands fast. And Paul spoke publicly to Peter and rebuked him for this action. That's basically the story. But there's a lot here that we need to draw out of this. So let's think for a moment about how and why we betray the gospel. Because that's really what this comes down to, is Paul brings it to the point. He says, the key verse is verse 14, I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel. How do we betray the gospel? How do we not keep in step with the gospel? The gospel 
Simply put, is that Jesus Christ was sent by God the Father to save sinners. It's good news because it's all of grace. Jesus Christ came to rescue us from condemnation that we rightly deserve for breaking God's law. Jesus Christ bore our sins in his body on the tree. He rose again in victory over sin and death. He accomplished everything at the cross. And it's so complete that there's nothing we can add. We just need to receive this gift of salvation by faith. That's, in essence, the gospel. It's good news. It's a gift that you receive by faith. And we need to emphasize that. We need to emphasize that it's a gift that you receive entirely by faith. It's nothing that you can add to it. But we need to note with some importance that there is a way to live after believing the gospel that is not consistent with the gospel you believed. Paul says, again, verse 14, their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel. Some people want to distort the gospel by saying that because Jesus Christ died for your sins, it doesn't matter how you live after you receive that forgiveness. You won't find that in the New Testament. That's a false teaching that's made up out of thin air. When you believe the gospel, there are certain ways that you now live that are consistent with the gospel. The word that Paul uses about not in step with the truth of the gospel is orthopedusin. might sound to you like ortho or podiatry. You put those together and it's basically right walking. They weren't walking right. They were walking crookedly. They were walking out of line. And Peter, of all people, had veered off the path of a consistent life with the gospel. So how did Peter betray the gospel by not eating with Gentiles? This is one of those situations where you've got the, you got the presenting issue. Peter removed himself from eating with Gentiles. You think, okay, well, you know, how is that a gospel issue? Why is that a big deal? But it's kind of like those instances where there's a fight between husband and wife over who took out the garbage last. You know it's really not about who took out the garbage last. There's a lot that's underneath. It's about the last month and a half um, that stuff has been going on. This presenting issue is the meal, but there's something underneath this. There's something big going on here. Something major is being said here by Peter in his actions. When he doesn't eat with the Gentiles any longer, he is basically preaching a sermon. He's saying so much. He had been eating with them, and now he's not. And it happened after these men who were teaching that in order to be saved, you must be circumcised. And now you have the Gentiles not welcome to eat with the Apostle Peter. So, what does that say? What effectively says, Peter was wrong when he was eating with the Gentiles, and these other teachers are right. It says that if you want fellowship with those who supposedly have fellowship with God, you have to be circumcised. It says, and this is the important one, that if you want a right relationship with God, it is not through Christ alone but it is through Christ and keeping the law. 
It also says that if Paul happens to be right in this, and Peter wrong, and if you're really just saved by the grace of Christ, then Peter is not accepting the very people that God has accepted. And that's dangerous ground. When Peter separates from the Gentiles, if those Gentiles are really accepted by God, Peter is not accepting into fellowship people that God has accepted into fellowship. And now Peter's not really opposed to Paul. Peter's not really opposed to the Gentiles. Peter is opposed to God. And that's a big deal. The thing about Peter that Paul points out is that while Peter is wrong in his actions, he's not wrong in his beliefs. Notice what he says in verse 12. When they came back, he drew, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And then verse 13, and the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. Paul's not calling Peter out for not believing the right thing. He's calling him out for not living in agreement with the right thing. He's saying he's acting hypocritically. He's, he's playing an actor. He's acting with hypocrisy. Peter knows the truth. We covered that. Remember Acts 10? Peter saw the sheep come down. He saw the animals on it. He saw uh, pigs and he saw sheep and he realized, I can eat both of them. And he realized he can receive Gentiles. And he even announced that the Gentiles received the gift of salvation. They received the Spirit. Peter believes the gospel. He says in Galatians 2 verse 9, again, that Peter gave Paul the right hand of fellowship. They're on the same page. Peter believed the right things. But now he's acting in discord with his beliefs. Do you ever do that? Do you ever know that you believe the right thing, but the way that you live is discordant with what you believe? You know what you believe. You know how you should live based on what you believe. But for one reason or another, you don't. Did you know that that's hypocrisy? If you're actually convinced of something and then you don't live by that thing, you're living hypocritically. You're not living with what you really believe. That's what Peter was doing. Peter betrayed the gospel for a very simple reason. Look at what it says. Verse 12. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself fearing the circumcision party. Why Peter betrayed the gospel and why we betray the gospel is probably the similar reason. It's out of fear. Peter feared that circumcision party. He feared them most likely because they had a lot of influence. And if he opposed them, that was going to complicate his ministry going to make it harder. It's always harder to oppose people. It's always harder to stand up. It's always harder to be in the minority and say, you're wrong, and now i got to deal with that problem. It's easier just to go along with it. 
Maybe he didn't see it as a big deal. Maybe he thought, well, they're still preaching Jesus. They're still preaching Christ crucified. They're still telling the Gentiles they need to believe. And the law is a good thing. I lived by it for a long time. So maybe they should join in. It'll just be easier. We'll just make the Gentiles become like Jews. It'll be easier for everybody. It's harder to oppose them. And he feared them. Boy, we can relate to that. We're so influenced by others. Sometimes in good ways. A lot of times in bad ways. If we take a stand, we face the possibility of being unpopular. We face the possibility of having to put up a fight, make a defense, put in an awkward position, lose friendships, lose favor. This is not just about taking a stand against popular social issues. This is taking a stand for the gospel. And there's a big lesson. This towering figure, the Apostle Peter, the one on whom much of the New Testament is built, he toppled out of fear. If Peter can succumb to the pressure of the crowd, shouldn't we take heed? Couldn't there be a falsehood that would creep in around us, that would sweep us along? We might know kind of superficially it's not right, it doesn't sound right, but it's not that big of a deal. I'll just go along with it because it's easier. This should cause us to stop and consider if there is any place in our lives that we're living inconsistently with what we believe. Is there any area in your life that you're acting hypocritically? Do you believe Jesus is Lord? Do you believe he has all authority in heaven on earth? Do you believe that he bought you with a price and you belong wholly and completely to him? Do you believe that? Where in your life are you not living by it? Where are you playing the part? You believe Jesus alone is Savior, but do you live like what you do merits your salvation? Like you try to be good enough for God? Like you think God will give you a pat on the back because of all the good that you've done today? Or God is going to despise you because of all the bad that you did yesterday? Do you live thinking that your justification depends on your works? You know it doesn't. You know it's all of grace. But do you play the part? Do you believe Jesus alone is Savior? But you treat others like what they do or don't do is how you judge whether you approve or disapprove of them. Have you become their judge? Have you become their savior? You believe Jesus alone is savior, so why then do you judge? Do you welcome people in Christ on the basis of what God has done? Or do you need them to dress a certain way, smell a certain way, act a certain way, drive a certain car, dress a certain style, have a certain personality, have a certain education? Well, certainly the gospel calls us to repent when we come to believe. And if somebody is living in unrepentant sin, we have a responsibility as a church to come alongside them. And Galatians 6 will talk about that. 
But for now, the whole basis of our salvation is in Jesus Christ. And if we put up a barrier to other people that they have to jump over another level of goodness in order to be welcomed into our fellowship or welcomed as a friend in Christ, are we putting up a restriction that God has not put up? That's what Peter did. He separated from the Gentiles out of fear. He believed the right thing, but his conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel. That's how and why we betray the gospel. But there's another lesson for us. It's how and why we defend the gospel. How and why we defend the gospel. Again, I view Paul in this scene as that brick that all the dominoes come tumbling against, and he stands fast. What was different about Paul? Why did he defend the gospel when all the others fell over? Even Barnabas, it says a companion in gospel ministry. It doesn't matter how many fell before him. Paul was going to stand fast. He was going to stay there. While in Jerusalem, he says in chapter 2, verse 5, when these false brothers came in, he said, to them we did not yield in submission even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. So whether he's in Jerusalem or whether he's in Antioch, he's consistent. He's not a hypocrite. That's one of the reasons or one of the ways that we defend the gospel is not by living hypocritically. We stand fast. Paul refused to fall to the pressure. We've got to be able to think in the moments of pressure about truth. Peter let the emotion of fear well up in him and dominate the way that he lives, but we've got to be able to cut through that fear and think, what is the truth in this situation? That's another way that we defend the gospel. We defend the gospel by seeing things clearly. We need to see things clearly. I think, personally, and perhaps as a church, that we need to be asking God regularly for wisdom. It's a common prayer in the Scripture. It's a common exhortation in the Scripture. We need wisdom. We need wisdom that God would let us see beyond the surface of things. We get so caught up in just what's happening. Oh, it's just a meal. I can step aside. It's going to be easier that way. Paul's whole argument is, no, it's not just a meal. There's more going on here. This is about the gospel. We need to see the gospel so clearly, have wisdom from God to see with eyes that are born again, eyes that are renewed by his word so that we can see gospel issues for what they are rather than get caught up by all the dummy arguments that are out there. We need to see things clearly, and that's exactly what Paul does. The masses are all tumbling over. The masses think they have it all together, but Paul cuts through the deception, and he can see to the truth of the issue. We need that kind of discernment. Paul sees what's happening. It's not a diet issue. He knows the Old Testament law, and he knew that in Leviticus it was given to the Jews to distinguish between the clean and the unclean, the common and the holy, in order to set them apart. In Leviticus chapter 11, amidst the food laws, God says this, For I am the Lord who brought you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God. 
You shall therefore be holy as I am holy. This is the law about beast and bird and every living creature that moves through the waters and every creature that swarms on the ground to make a distinction between the clean and the unclean and between the living creature that may be eaten and the living creature that may not be eaten. This whole dietary law was about setting apart those who belonged to God and those who didn't, the clean and the unclean. Paul knows that Christ has come. And the only way anybody can be clean is not by what they eat, but by whether they come through the blood of Jesus to God. That's the only way. And so when people start making distinctions about other people based on what they eat and don't eat, Paul knows this is a gospel issue because you don't distinguish between Gentile and Jew anymore. You distinguish between those who are forgiven by the blood of Christ and those who aren't. That's the only distinction that matters. And so when Peter starts separating, he knows this is a gospel issue because Peter is effectively saying the way that you come to God is through what you eat and don't eat. Paul knows this is about Jesus Christ who makes clean. He knows that Peter was a Jew saved by grace. He knows he himself was a Jew saved by grace. And he knows any Gentiles who are there are saved by grace. And so he defends the gospel by seeing things clearly. We need to do that as well. We need to be able to see the issues they come tumbling into our church. Is this a gospel issue or is it not? Sometimes it's not a big deal. The color of the walls is not a gospel issue. But if you get angry about people because of the color of walls that are chosen, that might be a gospel issue. We defend the gospel by seeing things clearly. We defend the gospel by bringing up publicly what has been done publicly. Peter says, or Paul says in verse 14, when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, if you though a Jew live like a Gentile, not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? Paul brought this up publicly. It was a public offense And so Paul brings it up publicly. As many people are as were influenced by this, Paul wants to protect so that they are not led astray. Sometimes we'll need to do that. It's hard. But sometimes the gospel might be so perverted by someone in a public office that we need to bring up publicly what's been said or done so that we're not all led astray. This is why... Paul says at the beginning of Galatians, verse 8, even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preached to you, let him be accursed. It doesn't matter who it is. If I start preaching another gospel, this applies to me as well. If you start bringing another gospel into this church, this applies to you as well. And Lord willing, there will be some people with courage enough to be able to stand up and say, no, we're not going to go that route. So we defend the gospel publicly. We defend the gospel because it defends true believers. Jesus Christ loves his sheep. And we don't want anyone to be led astray. And so if we see anything that's leading people astray, then we need to have compassion 
Paul could have seen all of those Gentiles think, now I need to keep the law to be saved. And he stood up to protect them, to protect those dear sheep of Christ. Defending the gospel needs to happen because we defend the unity of the church. This cataclysmic clash between Paul and Peter was really a, a turning point for the church because the church was about to split up into groups. There was about to be a Gentile church and a Jewish church. There's only one Lord. There's only one salvation. There's only one church, universally speaking. And so Paul stood up, this brick in Antioch, and defends the unity of the church so that it doesn't get split. There's so many applications to this. just want to mention one. And I really am reluctant to get into um, current issues, and I hope this isn't too controversial. But we've seen over the last two years church unity basically just get flushed in so many churches over things like masks and vaccines. There are other issues that split churches, that bring division. But we have to ask the question, and I think this is the core of the question as a church that we ask in regard to these social issues that are going on regarding masking, regarding vaccines. There's a lot more that can be said, but this is the church issue as, it, as we think about it. Do we believe that we are accepted before God whether we are vaccinated or unvaccinated? Do we believe that we are accepted by God whether we are masked or unmasked? Of course not. You can be vaccinated and get to heaven, and you can be unvaccinated and get to heaven. You can be vaccinated and go to hell, and you can be unvaccinated and go to hell. The thing that saves you, and this is the only thing that saves you, is not a mask or a vaccine. It is the blood of Jesus Christ. That's it. And if we start drawing up divisions among ourselves based on whether you are vaccinated or unvaccinated, wear a mask or don't wear a mask, we are violating the very scripture that we have just been studying. There are people who are very sensitive to this issue. And we need to act with love towards them. And we need to be patient. Even if we disagree about whether vaccines or not vaccines, masks or not masks. But the thing we cannot disagree about is whether or not you go to heaven based on masks. You go to heaven based on Christ. Think about this as it applies to so many different issues. Just to bring it to a, a full circle, go to Acts 15. I don't want to leave Peter hanging. I believe Acts 15 happened after what we just read in Acts 2. There's some debate about it, but I think the better arguments land that Acts 15 happens after what we just read. 
The church gathers to talk about this issue. And Peter speaks to the church publicly. There's much debate. The same kind of people that were there in Antioch are there now in Jerusalem where Peter is. In Acts 15, verse 7, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now therefore... Why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. Amen, Peter. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are patient with us because... We are way more like Peter than Paul. We thank you for your grace towards us. We thank you that you are relentless in your shepherding of us if we belong to your son. Your rod and your staff, they correct us. And Lord, I pray that you would help us to be corrected when we need to and that we would follow that example of Peter to Come to terms with where we've erred and get right. Father, I pray that there wouldn't be no division in our church based on superficial things. I pray that you'd give us such a clear sight of the gospel that we would be able to discern when falsehood comes in and threatens our unity. Keep us, Father, from erecting barriers to fellowship that you've not put in place. Get rid of any man-made barriers in our fellowship, anything that ought not to be. May we walk in step with the gospel. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.